Greetings, ladies and metalgents, and welcome to this latest narration of the web series, There is no epic lucha, but do puns. If you are new to the series, there is a playlist listed down below in the description. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 198. Booking it. The alchemist had the sense that there was something unsavory hidden in this haven of literature that the group had found squirreled on the third floor. The books and seats felt welcoming enough, but in the shadows, between the nooks and crannies, there was a creeping sensation of death being closer than normal. A chill that appeared when a book was removed too roughly or put back in the wrong place. The mage was taking stacks out and declaring the library had everything from childish moral tales to horrific scientific notes written in a very intriguing reports. The alchemist casually moved a monocle over his eye with a finger. The green tinted glass it contained allowed a previously invisible path of solution to light up to his eye. This was a glowing trail of liquid that the alchemist discreetly dispersed through the contraption in his shoes that led back to the entrance of the floor. It showed that the floor had remained static and unmoving for now. It was only really handy for current floors since the dungeon absorbed it in the previous floors, not that it was any good in a jungle due to the shifting weather. The mix was even made out of a few common ingredients, so the dungeon wouldn't be able to do much with it that it couldn't just do with its base materials. He frowned as the gunsmith held up a thick book, the cover of a woman being seduced by a broomstick with massive masculine eyebrows. It was called the Shaft of Love. Was she into that? La the gunsmith never struck him as the romantic sort. Trying to focus, he turned the shelves, looking for a secret passage or something to clue them into what the floor may contain. It was a long shot, but the only other thing to do was to prod the stuffed cobalt crammed in between two bookshelves that looked glassy-eyed as if heavily drunk or brain-dead. That was more the necromancer's thing. He paused, sniffing the air as a familiar smell of explosive powder lingered in the air. It was an exotic type a much older mixture that fell out of popularity due to its small radius and somewhat unpredictable force. The alchemist turned back to the cobalt. He stared at the droopy face and dull scales. He reached out slowly with the dagger he had, readying the point to pierce the eye if there was any sort of reaction. I found something, the mage cried out, and the alchemist jumped a little, scowling at the mage before he eyed the ugly stuffed cobalt and shook his head. This dungeon was a little strange. Same. That's a weird altar in the corner of this place, made my skin crawl, the archer said as he reappeared with the warrior. It wasn't so bad, the warrior smiled. What do you have? The gunsmith asked the mage as she wandered over. The mage held up a strange book that looked to be made out of a strange, shiny, translucent material. The title was King of Many Hats. Looks like a book in a library, the alchemist said, trying to shake off the creepy cobalt from his mind. Except I can't open it, the mage said, as they all turned serious, eyeing the book with new eyes. The warrior attempted brute strength, but the thing was stubborn and remained closed. The archer, who had messed with many locks, could find no secret switch or compartment with his dexterous fingers. The gunsmith, who had expertise on mechanical inventions, could see nothing artificial or visibly wrong with the book. Is it not alive or dead? An object, but not, the necromancer said wisely. This left it up to the alchemist, who had the smarts to do what they could not. He laid the book down and examined the latch before mixing a few tubes together with quick motions, using his manner to contain the experiments. The alchemist was no mage, 
He couldn't use his mana to shape spells or break reality, but he could use it as tools and containers, allowing him to make more dangerous chemicals on the fly. Soon, he held a bubbling grey tube and dropped a few drops on the book's edge, watching as the book almost quivered as the solution ate away the latch with alarming speed. The book smoked, then slammed open with a burst of wind that seemed to fill the room in an outwards howl. The group looked around, waiting for monsters or a trap, but all they heard was the rustling of papers in the breeze. All this for a book, the archer mumbled as the mage leaned over to glance at the pages. There was once a king given a duty and a throne too big for his body, but not his heart. The mage said slowly, and despite sounding like every other storybook in the room, the words made the ambient manner stir, usually a sign that something somewhere was reacting to them. It was either a trap, a treasure room, or both. The king discovered one day that what made him king was not simply an obligation, but the crown upon his skull. Thus, the king could be anyone if he had a different hat. The mage continued to read, his fingers sinking into the book slightly. I was kind of hoping for a, the big boss has a weak spot in the foot that one shot kills it, the gunsmith admitted, as the mage turned the page slowly, finding it sticking to the pages below with a trail of slime. If the king wore a cap, it could be a wheeler. If it wore a tall hat, it could be a chef. If it fit inside a shoe, it could be a traveler, the mage said with a frown when the creeping sensation was filling the room and the alchemist turned slowly, finding that nothing had changed. No, something had changed. The king even found if he squeezed into an empty space, he could become a book. The mage's voice trailed off before there was a gurgling noise. Where was the kobold? The alchemist snapped his head around as the mage tossed the book across the table as it bubbles, forming a slime puddle with massive spectacles atop its head that were fogged over. It formed a rip in its mouth. Rules uh, broken, it screeched harshly, sending most of the candles in the library blowing out in reaction. What is that? The gunsmith shouted as she raised her weapon and took aim. They're fake, it is just a simulacrum, the mage tried to explain. Mimic, the warrior yelled out, axe raised as his arms bulged with contained power. Tomagon, it gurgled, own warning before it exploded in a dozen pieces of slime as the gunsmith fired with a harsh burst of explosive bullets, punching a massive hole through the bookshelf behind the slime. It's just a puppet shelf or something else, the mage said over the ringing in their ears as the gun went off in a semi-contained space. The door to the library creaked, then slammed shut as every book in the library began to shake and tremble on the various shelves. That was when a voice that sounded a little unhinged and delighted at the events called out from behind the bookshelf just out of sight. Now it's say check out some first aid books, but I think there might be against you too. The demonic little voice cackled before it faded, running away with clawed feet clacking on the wooden floor. From the smoking hole in the shelf, pages began to float against gravity and spin slowly together as massive books and tomes flew off the shelves, slamming into one another with dozens of more books on the way. Construct! Go, people! The warrior thundered. The alchemist stopped thinking, stopped having worries, slipping into a routine that they had done a dozen times. He and the mage got together, firing off cutting winds and acidic flasks to slow the forming of the book golem as the warrior, archer, and gunsmith sought out the source of the golem's power. It could be a single book or all the books, but something would stick out. The necromancer stayed behind, releasing a massive cloud of bone ash 
that he formed into a swarm of birds. The little grey creatures bombed the golems well, seeping into the golems' forming body and trying to become a layer that would hinder it on all levels if it finished forming. Might be a room, Guardian, the archer called out after setting another shelf on fire with his arrows, seeing it had little effect on stopping the golem. Then we take it down. Archer, work on that damned door, the warrior ordered as he pivoted, going for a now nearly complete monster. It was a massive construct made of books and paper with something inside to give it weight and force. The pages covering its body shifted with magical text that made it near impossible to read, but proved to be very distracting when trying to take it all in. It raised one of its fists, forming a strange gesture. The meat shouted out a warning seconds before its fingers glowed orange. Maxoff's second fireball, move! When the mage tells you to duck for a fireball, you duck. The alchemist threw himself behind a topple table, watching the room light up as a streak of fire shot overhead, hitting the wall before spreading like liquid over the stone, burning in a wave of heat. That's advanced magic! Ah, uh, Karen's devilish mind push! The mage cried out again, and the alchemist didn't know the protocol for that spell, but got the idea when three bookcases began to shoot forward with enough speed to break a bone or two. Can't you counterspell? The gunsmith cried out as she rolled under one of the flag bookcases. Counterspell is just pushing your mana into their spells and messing it up. I can only counterspell people of the same strength, not instant casting golems. The mage called back. His face red and his pimples looking alarmingly close to popping due to the stress. The warrior used one of the bookcases to leap forward, slamming his axe down on the golem's head, splitting the open book it was using for a face. A second later, a new book replaced the old one, and the golem went from slinging spells to disarming the warrior in a complex series of motions and kicking him through a very bookshelf that he had used as a platform. The alchemist squinted, reading the cover of the book acting as a face. The Monk That Went Downtown, an action thriller novel. The gunsmith fired, blowing the head off again, and a new book promptly took its place, but it'd take a few more seconds to integrate them before. The alchemist had to strain to read the book, the lion, and the walk through the geographically correct savannah. In a few seconds, the golem had fallen to all fours, fingers forming with curled pieces of paper into claws as a mane of bristle paper rose up behind its body, a thick tail swishing made out of leather book covers. It roared before it pounced towards the gunsmith, ignoring the easily targeted warrior. Also, very interesting. Keep aiming for the head. We need to get a book in place where you can handle. The alchemist shouted out as he handed the warrior his missing axe. The necromancer strained, slowing the lion for precious seconds with his bone ash, letting the gunsmith escape a mauling by a thousand paper cuts. Locks being a bit tricky. Just buy me time, the archer announced. How tricky, the warrior called back brushing splinters out of his hair as he ready to charge again. The alchemist looked over to see the archer digging a hole in the wood with an arrow. No lock, so a bit trickier than normal, was the answer. The golem jumped, pushing off the wall with all four legs to avoid a massive bang from the one of the gunsmith's rifles, which had knocked aside, forcing her to draw out a gun from her bag. The sound of excitement filled the room, making everyone, even the golem, stare at the gunsmith as she aimed a small, slender, ladywood gun. It's not me, it's the gun, she cried and fired, a massive glowing green bullet emerging to not only hit the golem, but punch a massive hole through it that temporarily scattered the books and pages into a pile. It didn't take long for the pile to reform. Fire again, the warrior said, seeing how effective the gun was. I, I can't, the gunsmith said. The gun in her hands was silent and even huffing a little as she tried to pull the trigger over and over without result. 
Mine weren't at work, she demanded, and the gun actually answered her, to the shock of everyone. Your man may accept that sad finger play, but I have standards. This lady needs to be wined and dined before you pull her lady trigger, the gun said in a sort of passable voice of the wine tree. I'm going to die, she hissed. Just don't do that and you'll be fine, the gun said, beginning to vibrate a little as it regained energy. The golem reformed, but the book atop his head was new. The alchemist stared at the title with confusion. One thousand soups, good for the soul. That didn't sound so bad. The golem held out its hair, which now had funnels instead of fingers. The smell of chicken broth filled the air ominously. Archer! Door! The warrior called, taking a step back. Not yet, the archer responded, having the door handle mostly exposed and dancing to his fingertips. We're about to be boiled alive, the warrior shouted, but the necromancer took a step forward and held out a hand, making the golden yellow chicken and noodle soup part of the messianic figure. You can't control soup, the mage asked in surprise. Uh, only somewhat, but this is soul food, the necromancer explained, but the alchemist didn't really understand. What, can you make angel cake dance? The alchemist asked, watching as the golem tried vegetable soup and then tomato next. You need a priest for that, sadly, the necromancer said, straining as his streams kept coming. The golem took a step back, assessing the battle, and then removed its own head. Wait, that's cheating, the gunsmith cried, sloshing through ankle-deep soup. The book that landed on his neck next was simply titled, Here Be Dragons. Doors open, the archer shouted as the wooden door collapsed due to the sheer hacking it endured and the soup soaking into it. Tactical retreat, the warrior ordered. The golem began to glow. Massive wings of paper formed on its back as the glowing fire in its chest consumed paper for fuel. The emerging fire blast chased them down the hall, bringing false steam soup and the smell of fresh books. The library had defeated them. Thank you, Dio said as the library golem handed him a book off the top shelf, then brought Dio lemonade to drink at the seating area. I'll be careful with it, Dio promised, and the golem patted his head. As he sat down, Dio could taste ash and smoke. His dad had explained that Dalta had mirrors now, places that were the dungeon, but not Dalta really, like reflections of two mirrors close together. Dio didn't quite understand, but sometimes he felt, tasted, and once even saw other people like ghosts. They never reacted to Dio, but he wrote down a message in chalk once, and Dalta kindly transported it to one of the mirrors for him. It was like leaving a kind message for them, he told Grimm, and he said Dio should write down that there was a secret tunnel where there wasn't, and watched him hit the heads on it. Dio didn't quite see the fun of that idea yet, but Grimm thought that it was funny, so Dio would wait and see. He stared down at the book called How to Study Better to Get Employment. He was a little sad because Grimm didn't hire him to watch the door, so Dio had the idea that if he finished school super fast, he could work with Grimm and they could run the Grimm Tail Guild together. He opened the front page in technical jargon jumped out at him with long, dry, boring sentences that talked about time management and calculated timeful events with expanding routines. Dio felt his brain caught fire for a moment. I need help, he mumbled, slamming his head into the book. What you doing? came a voice and Dio blinked, spotting Jack the Cobalt nearby, watching him as he read something called The Anarchist Dessert List. I'm trying to be smart, but I can't figure out how to make smart simple, so I don't understand, Dio summed up. To his surprise, Jack nodded gravely. I hear you. I was the worst when it came to my family in terms of magical combat, he Jack said seriously. How big was your family? Dio asked, thinking Jack had a brother or maybe a sister. 
I had 36 siblings, but they were all talented. I think I had 36. I, I might have invented some to cheer myself up when I was a prisoner. Jack mumbled to himself. Is uh, 36 a lot? D.O.L. asked slowly. Jack grinned. Depends. 36 puppies? Not a bad thing. 36 dead bodies in your basement? Uh, maybe, he said sagely. Don't you worry, I'll teach you how to be smart where it counts. And you have the one of the most unhinged library collections at your fingertips. Complete with self-aware search function, Jack promised, giving Dio hope. Can you teach me to be smart? He asked, and Jack gave him a strangely gentle look. No, I'm going to teach you that you are already smart, but haven't had the chance to show it, he replied. Thank you, you don't have to, Dio said, a little shy now, as he couldn't stop smiling. Jack stared at him, then down at his own claws. I know, but you remind me of someone, he said, and Dio blinked in confusion. Who? he asked slowly. Jack just grinned. Someone I made up to feel better about myself. He winked and pulled out a new book for Dio to read. How to make comrades and sway people. We'll start with Warfare of the Mind, Jack cried, and the library lights flickered dramatically. Oh, very nice, Jack praised the golem nearby, who waved lazily. Dio was going to sway the heck out of people. End of chapter. Just a note, with this episode, we are caught up with the author. So, we'll be moving on to another series from tomorrow. When there are 20 or more chapters available, and my schedule allows it, we'll continue with the story. But this might be months from now, or even longer. It very much depends on the schedule. Anyway, on to the story. Chapter 199. Perfectly Normal Thomas Darkblade. Many, many years ago. Blair, he called out, as a small, so fragile woman turned to face the silver wall he formed his avatar out of. Silver, she smiled, and her expression was so warm in contrast to his dungeon. He reached out to touch her hand, and she allowed him. She wandered his deepest flaws safely, and his command, and she even adapted to his potent manner with ease. Her ebony hair was like obsidian, her skin of alabaster, and her eyes of the clearest blue. It was like she had been sculpted by something that knew what a human was only by the purest ideals, and she was all Silver's. The town is growing restless, she said, and Silver vaguely remembered the pests on the surface. Let them just stay here. Become my contract, Silver insisted for the thousandth time. Nair laughed with the noise of like clear bells. My God, she rejected him a thousandth and one time. Silver frowned. Not used to having to argue or even accept another's will on his own walls. But he would for Lair. Will you at least tell me why? He begged. He's warm food like liquid mercury that shifted between a knight and a wolf. She thought about it. I need to head east to a faraway land in the corner of this world. I just have to, she said. And Silver mentally cursed at having no interest in the outside world. Tell what is there and I'll make it here. I'll even change the previous floor I have for you, he offered, and his soul crawled at a mere idea of changing anything. Blair smiled, and that little pointy canine she had was briefly shown, making Silver light up as Lair did her best to hide it from others, calling it crooked. Silver had never seen anything so crooked look so beautiful. It's not something that you can give me. There's a funeral I need to attend, she explained gently. And Silver took her every word and stored it as permanent memories inside his core. Me funeral? That's, uh, to remember someone who died. Uh, did someone die? Silver asked slowly, trying to avoid sounding insensitive. Someone did. 
and I'm hoping remembering them, together with my family, will keep them alive a little longer, in some way. Lair said with a faraway look that made her look slightly ethereal to Silver's eyes. What was their name? Silver pressed, feeling a little envious of the dead schmuck. Oh, I know that look. Let's just call him Bratislav. Lair laughed and ran off to one of Silver's grand dining halls, where she enjoyed playing with the food made of pure silver. Silver would find out sooner or later. Present day. Argus tried not to cover his nose as the man skittered about, smacking bugs with a massive worn-down shoe. Thomas Darkblade, adventurer extraordinaire, you may have heard about me due to my deeds at the capital where I was vital in assaulting the Mad King with a massive cheese dragon, or tearing down the gates with my monstrous strength. Or perhaps you might have even heard how I took a massive chunk out of the Royal Igus shield with my teeth alone, he bragged. The cockroaches were making off with his shoe as he talked. I'm pretty sure you're not the big cheese haldi, the demon Mila, or Pick the insatiable, Yatina said with a frown and the man lit up. Ah, oh, my apprentices, you have heard of them, he said with delight. You don't look older than thirty, Lim pointed out as a small trickle of water ran past in the sewer, looking oddly clean, as if it wasn't being used by the town. Thomas Starblade blinked, then ran his hand through his black hair, and Argus recoiled as what looked like a dozen spiders fled out of his touch, revealing a shocking buzz cut of white hair. Your skin still has a healthy amount of youth, Yutina said, not disturbed at all by the scene as she examined the man with her eye. Ah, that's because we're on the 154th floor of a dungeon. I found the tap of fabled youth, Thomas Starblade said with excitement, and pointed down the tunnel where there was indeed a set of stairs going down. Argus got a strange feeling when he saw those stairs. Lim, go down the stairs, Yatina asked, and Lim frowned, but did as she asked, climbing down the stairs, only to emerge back out of them as if he had come from the above floor. Thomas Darkblade's nostrils fled. Then, just as he looked ready to go red with strain, he suddenly exhaled and found peace. Oh, hello there. My name is the Grand Adventurer Thomas Starkblade. Have you come to explore the dungeon with me today? The man asked slyly, as if he just spotted the group. I might allow you to join me, despite the fact the experience will be divided four ways, but I can manage as long as I am party leader and get priority on Assassin Dagger. There's a set I've been looking for down here that gives me a whole plus five to cool, he explained as his eyes took on a sudden dark gleam. Sir, why don't you go out the other stairs, Yatina asked with a slow concern. And let those four win, I will have the last rat and my due, Thomas Darkblade thundered, the tunnel shaking with the false. But there is no last rat, it's just cockroaches and spiders down here, August tried to point out, and the man twitched an aura of wrongness taking over, like a dark grease stain, as he tried to spit words out. I am Thomas Darkblade. Find rat, he strained, spittle flying from his clenched teeth, and Yutina suddenly stood in front of Argus and Lim. I heard skittering down that way, she said, and the oppressive, horrible, familiar aura of a man receded as he took off with excitement. Tally-ho, he cried. What was that? Lim whispered. Hands shaking. Yatina was about to say something when someone walked up from behind them with the calm steps. August turned and he instinctively drew back as a polite-looking man in a suit jacket and slicked-back hair appeared. He was menacing in a way that wasn't obvious with a selection of little containers around his waist. Even worse, August knew him. 
Mr. Japes, Argus muttered, and the man smiled. Ah, little gentle, how the years have passed and affected us both so little, the potter said with delight. Can we help you? Yatina asked, and Japes paused as if taken back by her. What a wonderful woman! A splash of dungeon power freely gained and with such inquisitive eyes. I could just bottle both of them for my collection. He praised, and Yatina merely raised her brows. Do you practice in front of a mirror, or were you born with the desire to be detestable in the first meeting? She asked bluntly. I presume the latter, since even my parents couldn't bear to be around me long after I was born. He admitted, then shrugged. Blood. I find it the weakest link between those who are family, he said, then looked around the sewer as if checking for something. Ah, good. You didn't press the prison too far, Jabe said, and at that touch, the bricks lit up to reveal a dazzling array of magical seals. This is a prison where we just walked in, Lim said, looking around. Mr. Japes is really good at making, uh, pots, Argus said tightly. Japes ignored them for a moment as he touched a few symbols and the sewer began to expand in different directions. The twists groaning as new tunnels opened and new details were added. Yatina watched him and Argus could see she knew something that he and Lim hadn't noticed. How long has Durance been a prison for an echo? She asked and Argus shivered, the urge to cover his mouth rising up to the word. Thomas Starkblade! is just an adventurer. It's best we refer to him as such. Too much challenging to that worldview can make him unpleasant. As you saw, Jape said with a sigh. He's a void in reality. I look upon him, and under the thin shell of a person is a growing gnawing hunger, Yatina whispered. He's actually not that strong. Very annoying, but not strong. He was deliberately deprived of his chance to grow. But even in his short time of following us to the founding of this village, he had a catastrophic consequence upon the world, Japes explained, as he closed the magic seal back into the brick. What's an echo? Lim asked, and Argus listened, needing to know what the answer was from Japes. Oh, I wouldn't dare break Fair Play's little knowledge rule on that subject. You could be tempted or drawn to them simply by knowing, Japes let out a fake gasp of shock. Only knowing specific names and ideas, Yatina cut him off, and she really didn't care for the potter. She turned to Argus and Lim, frowning. It's not really my area of expertise, but echoes are, well, you can call them either anti-life beings or total life beings. Both are technically true, she said, as they watched Thomas Darkblade wander along a wall, throwing a rusty grappling hook on the ground and pretending to drag himself along it. Inside us all exists proof of other... We call it seeds, cause, and even darkness. A thing that can grow and grant us power, while doing us closer to a terrible fate. Japes interjected, then looked around with a smile. Most life has this piece of them, a perfect piece that sustains the rest of us. But this other can exist outside of us, and it mostly does. Japes continued as he drew his finger across the space bringing forth a translucent window like water suspended in the air. Imagine, if you can, that all over this world, under it, above it, inside it, there are oceans of other, and sometimes these oceans form storms of other, he said and pulled a window down for Argus to peer through. When Argus looked at Thomas Darkblade through this window, his human form was still there, but leaking out like a slithering tendrils was something else deep inside his body. It looked like a fruit that had been painted mid-exposion. 
the inside forming an eye that did not see, a heart that did not beat. He pulled his gaze away, unsettled, but oddly nostalgic. Enjoy lecturing, Yutina asked as she stood in front of the window to prevent them seeing more as Lim was breathing far too heavily to be normal. Somewhat, Japes admitted with a smile. Echoes are a great existence that are born in numerous ways. The first is a simple gathering of other in the sea, enough until it shapes itself. These tend to be goliaths of a more bestial nature. Your great virons, monstrous slumbering giants, your unfathomable sea beasts. They can learn and even hide themselves given time, Japes said as he turned and headed to the next. My pa once told me of a great varon that was shot down in the blinding white arrow and it fell into the ocean. Lim spoke up for the first time, since seeing the true form of Thomas Darkblade. Yes, I did try to study it, but the thing is under a great seal. Quite a sad affair, Japes said, as Argus shivered at his disappointment of not getting to study such a thing. The dark drakes of the island were quite rude, so I didn't stick around. But the second means of an echo forming is human worship. We, as a species, can worship most anything, so when we direct our thoughts into the void, we can shape more defined echoes with purpose and religious angles. A lot of cults begin this way, Japes said as he made it sound like a bunch of hobby clubs that started up. The one thing about an echo is they can bounce off each other and merge. A lot of the fun events that I've witnessed are lesser groups trying to find other echoes to feed their icon. This is why you'll never see them truly working together. Echoes are just too juicy to each other, Japes giggled. It's like they want to gather together. The lost sibling theorem is popular amongst theologians. People say that the sister invited the gods into the world to drown out the echoes. The gods can protect them from the siren call of echoes, Yutina said, sounding like Japes was talking about something boring. Japes paused and the stairs back to the surface. Gods, talk about choosing to break your fingers rather than your whole foot, he snorted. You don't like gods, Mr. Japes? Argus asked, surprised, because he would have thought that Mr. Japes would have liked to dissect one. Mr. Japes turned back with an odd smile. We don't need gods. We, I have a superior option. He said without explaining further. He was about to climb out of the sewers when Lim called out, You said that there was three ways. He reminded the potter, and Mr. Japes nodded. The last way an echo can be bored is if someone amasses great power and hears the right thing, witnesses the correct scene, tastes the suitable food, and the seed within them sprouts and they become true life, he said with amusement. That has never been proven, Yatina interjected shooting Lim a warm smile to calm him. Well, it would never be proven within Fairplay's pension for mutilating their own seeds until they're more machine than not. Japes drawled with a sly look. He turned once more. Besides, I am living proof. I briefly turned into an echo before I cut it out of my own chest and put it on my shelf for my collection, he said airily. You can just cut them out, Argus asked, face sweating at the idea. Mr. Japes considered the question. Not really, but I made you, he admitted, and was gone into the beautiful daylight. When he was gone, Lim turned to Lyotina. What do you see when you look at him? he asked quietly. He's the opposite of an echo. There's just too much on the outside and nothing on the inside, she replied and then looked down at the sewer with a shiver. 
I'll get this sealed up and work with the elders to prevent anyone going down, she sighed. August nodded, but his mind was racing as he tried to figure something out. Tell me more about the Great Viren, he asked, and Lim, who looked surprised but pleased to be the center of attention. August put Thomas Darkblain out of his mind. He was becoming distinctly aware that he couldn't just call the Echo Thomas Darkblade. It was becoming very annoying. Thomas Darkblade could just stay down there because there was no rats for him to find. Like Mr. James said, Thomas Darkblade wasn't strong, just annoying. Thomas Darkblade paused as a thin line in the deep sewer dungeon was cracked at the edges, letting in fresh air. The crack was so small that he couldn't even get his hand in or out, but he didn't need to. He pulled out some of his cheese made by his feet and placed it near the crack. Thomas Darkblade would win. He always won. This is a trap, the gunsmith commented as they eyed the line of food and a massive buffet table along the resting spot of an open fire below a massive mural of a woman and a dungeon. I am hungry, the alchemist admitted, before dropping some of the meat into the test tube of a solution that turned a soft blue. It is food, but I wouldn't even know what to test for, he reported. Are you poisonous? The necromancer asked the roast chicken, which sat up in his bony drum legs. It made an X with its wings and flopped back down. At what level between dead and alive is there a line for you? The mage asked and the necromancer smiled, moving a finger near the mage and coming away with a dusty gloved finger. We're all rotting on some level. Some just do it quieter than others, he said, and wiped the mage's dead skin on his robes. Yeah, but there has to be a limit, complained the archer, as he dug into a lemon tot. I don't animate toenails, came a response. Because they're not technically flesh, the warrior guessed. No, I don't like toenails, the necromancer said as he made his way to the soups. I always wanted to ask, but how did you even get into death magic? The gunsmith asked around some sort of pasta dish with the juicy pork meatballs. When I was young, my pet fish died. I was so upset, it stopped being dead. That was a hint, the necromancer smiled as he sipped on his chicken noodle soup. The mage was struggling to understand how the necromancer could even touch soup after the library. Maybe he was just asleep, the warrior suggested as he dug into a salad with cherry tomatoes and dressing. It pulled itself out of the cat's mouth with some effort, so uh, no, the necromancer added. The mage looked around and found that he was not really drawn to anything. He didn't have a sweet tooth or a hankering for meat. He was about to give up when he spotted an unusual dish. It looked like little white grains and there was a dark bottle next to it with the letters soy on it. The taste was bland and simple. The sauce made it tangy. It was perfect. Soy, I'm going to call you soy boy now, the alchemist said after seeing the bland meal. The mage didn't mind. He wondered if he could chop the core minerals and vitamins into this meal, but keep the taste simple. Some sort of super scholar meal. All the benefits, but none of the time wasting. Mash and some fish heads and egg yolks too. The idea was coming together. End of chapter. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Sands the Skeleton, Lightshock, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azricol. Thank you very much.